Welcome to Ride Ever Stride, Episode 15. Welcome to Ride Every Stride with Van Hargis, a podcast about horsemanship and more. Our goal is to educate, motivate, inspire, and entertain you through an exploration of everything horsemanship and the intersection of horsemanship and humanship. My name is Laura McClellan, and I'm your co-host on Ride Every Stride, and I'm here today with Master Horseman Van Hargis. How you doing, Van? I'm good, Miss Lauren. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Now, last time... We talked about bits, and I yeah. think that was in response to some questions. What are we going to talk about today? We're kind of going to follow up on that, Laura, because you know we, we did talk about the bits, basically the mouthpieces and the shanks and that sort of thing. But I want to follow up and talk a little bit about the bits and how to adjust them in the horse's mouth, uh, proper selection of head stalls, and we'll talk a little bit about the reins and things like that as well. All right. Well, then let's get started. Well, all right. Well, Last time we discussed a lot about the different types of bits. We went through the range of everything from a snaffle and what the definition of a snaffle was and how it affected the horse and that sort of thing. And and let me reiterate this too, Lars, that whenever someone asks me, what bit should I use on whatever horse? I know they're looking for an absolute answer, but the reality is I never give them an absolute answer on that because I, my opinion is this. I really don't care what bit they use. I'm just more concerned about that they understand how the bit is used and how it affects the horse. Everybody has a favorite. You know, for example, my favorite's an offset D-ring snaffle. I do all of my basic training in that. If I've ever got a problem that results in a horse training situation, I always go back to that bit to fix it. Um, and I do that for various reasons, but it is by far my favorite bit. Other trainers and other horsemen out there have bits that, that feel good to them. And for whatever reason, that they feel as if they get a a good positive response from that bit when using it on their horse. may not necessarily be the bit that I would choose, may not be the same bit that some other guy would choose, but for whatever reason, they feel as if they communicate with that bit very well with their horse. And there's a lot to be said for confidence, confidence in the, the tool that they use, and of course, the confidence in the effect that it has on their horse. So I'm not one to tell anybody to change bits just because it's not something I would use. I want them to be confident in, in what they're using. But the other aspect of that that I want to kind of go into more, though, is how that bit is adjusted into a horse's mouth. And for example, you know, as I was a kid growing up, I heard very many people say, oh, well, whenever you put a bit in a horse's mouth, you always want to give them a little wrinkle, you know, right in the corner of their mouth. You should see at least one wrinkle. Some people argue that you need to see two wrinkles. And some people would not may even see you want to have a horse with a big smile on his face. In other words, really pull that bit up into the corner of the horse's mouth. And, you know, Laura, many years ago, um, when I very first started doing clinics, I had these old personalized pencils printed, and everybody when they when they signed up to a clinic, they got a Van Hargis horsemanship pencil. That was a that was a little gimme giveaway thing for everybody who signed up into a clinic. But I had one stipulation with that: you got your free pencil, but you had to put it in your mouth, and you had to put it across your teeth. You know, like you have those pencils going across in your mouth. And I'd ask those people, well. How do you adjust a horse bit in your horse's mouth with one wrinkle, two wrinkles, with three wrinkles? And they'd say, oh, two wrinkles on my horse. Well, good. When you put this pencil in your mouth, be sure and give yourself at least two wrinkles. And then after a while, everybody in the clinic would have the pencil in their mouth and they would give themselves the wrinkles that they would have adjusted the bit on their horse as well. So basically, I'd be riding around and a moment later, I'd be looking and I might be looking at you, Laura, and say, hey, Laura, where's that free pencil I gave you? 
oh, man, man, it was kind of making my cheeks tired, so I took it out. Oh, okay. Go up to the next guy. Hey, where's that pencil I gave you? Oh, man, my cheeks were kind of bugging me, so I put it in my pocket. And some would just admit they just threw the darn thing away because it was uncomfortable. But then I'd say to them, well, wonder why it was so uncomfortable. Well, having it pulled up in my mouth and it stretching my cheeks, it just felt uncomfortable to me, so I just got rid of the darn thing. I said, isn't that amazing that the horse doesn't get that same choice? So we've got the bit in his mouth, and he's got a couple of wrinkles in there, maybe two wrinkles, or maybe a big old smile on his face, and that's uncomfortable. But unfortunately for the horse, he can't just spit the darn thing out or go put the bit in his pocket. So the question is, well, okay, well, Van, well, how would you adjust the bit in the horse's mouth? Yeah, I'm gathering from what you're saying yeah. that you're not a big fan of the wrinkle. No, I'm not approach. a big fan at all of the, of the wrinkles. And it makes sense to me to to think of it in this way. For example, Laura, here in this room, if I was to ask you if the light was on or off, and if the, the room was illuminated, the obvious answer would be... It would, it, the, it's on. It's on, sure. But if I flip the switch and suddenly it gets darker in here, or dark period, and ask the same question, is the light on or off, your answer would be... It's off. Sure. So now let's just pretend now that the light is on, and I'd ask you, say, Laura, is that light bright or, or is it dim? Uh-oh. That, well, that's a little <laughs> that's, more subjective. Yeah, it's a subjective question, isn't it? And it's, how are you going to answer that? You know, compared to what? You know, compared to if the light was, you know, really bright that it was hurting your eyes or if it was just brighter than, say, another light or dimmer than another light. So whenever I think of a horse with a wrinkle in his face, I think of the light already on. Therefore, the horse should respond when the light gets brighter. What I want to do is I want to have the bit adjusted in the horse's mouth just to the point where it just barely touches the corners of the horse's mouth. As a result, when I pick up my rein or I send a cue through my reins to the bit, when that bit affects the horse's mouth and affects the corners of his mouth especially, then I want the horse to acknowledge that the light is on. When he receives the cue and I can release the pressure of the bit, now the light is off. The fact that horses are great conservers of energy, which I wish we all were, the horse's objective would be to keep the bit off, keep the light switch off, so to speak. In other words, put the bit back in neutral. So whenever we send the signal to the horse, the light comes on. The horse hopefully will over time be very quickly to respond. Therefore, we can take the light off. To me, for the horse, I think it's much easier for him to determine whether or not the light is on or the light is off as opposed to whether or not it's bright or dim. Again, as a horseman, my job is to always try to make the horse's job of learning as easy as possible, for him to discern the cue as easy as possible, for him to know that he's being asked to do something or he's being rewarded for doing something as easy as possible. I think it's way too difficult for us to ask a horse to have pressure on his mouth already, in other words, one wrinkle, two wrinkles, or three wrinkles, or maybe a big old smile on his face, to where that light is always on, and to ask him to respond only when the light gets brighter. I think that's very difficult for the horse to discern. I think in some cases, the horses will get to the point to where they may be so uncomfortable that they're just ignoring almost any signal. Therefore, it has to be a very obviously bright signal for the horse to know to respond or not. Again, I just think that's way too complicated. What I want my horse to realize is, is and to discern whether or not the cue is there or the cue isn't. And that can be determined very easily just by adjusting the bit in the horse's mouth to where it just barely touches the corners of his mouth. Now, with that said, I'll have some people argue, well, but what about that one colt that you're just starting under saddle and he's just now learning how to pack a bit for the first time and he keeps getting his tongue over the bit? 
What would be the solution to that? Well, some people would put the bit in the horse's mouth so deeply, in other words, pick up on the, the head stall and adjust the head stall so much that the horse would have a big smile on his face. Their theory is that then the horse can't retract his tongue far enough backwards to get it up and over the bit. In part, that could be true. I've seen some horses still manage to get their tongue over the bit. But what I do instead, though, Lars, is almost the direct opposite. In other words, the space between the horse's front teeth, his incisors, and the space between his molars is a fairly significant amount of space. So oftentimes what I would do is I would actually loosen the bit to the point, loosen the head stall to the point, to where it's just barely behind those incisors, to where the bit's almost just flopping around in the horse's mouth. And what I've noticed is, is the horses will get very tired of that bit flopping around, and they'll put their tongue up underneath the bit, pick it up, and hold it. As a result, now the horse will find a very comfortable spot to hold that bit to where it's no longer flopping around. He can't get his tongue over the bit because when he does, the bit falls back down and becomes uncomfortable. So the horse learns and teaches himself, basically, to pick the bit up and hold it. Now, over time, when the horse holds the bit very consistently, and over, over time, I will then adjust the head stall to where the horse tells me is the most comfortable place for him to hold the bit. And I've, it's just amazing that over time, the horse will learn to hold the bit and be comfortable with that as opposed to letting it fall back down and flop around in his mouth and be uncomfortable. So in other words, I kind of let the horse tell me at that stage where to most comfortably adjust that bit for that particular horse. Now, with that said, not every head stall and not every horse's head is going to be the exact same. So I just try to get as close to that corner of the horse's mouth that I possibly can so that I can hopefully make that horse as comfortable as I possibly can. And so if I'm hearing you right, the the reason for this, the purpose for this would be that you've got it right there by the corners of the mouth so that it that your signals are more obvious. They're more, I mean, I can sort of see what you're saying, that if you've got the bit back so far that you've got these wrinkles in the mouth, it really is always on. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And, and what I wanted to, to discern is not whether or not the light got brighter or it got dimmer if he does something positive. What I, all I want the horse to be able to discern is, and, de, and to detect is whether or not the light is on or the light is off. In other words, when I pick up my left hand, I want that horse to feel the bit on the, that corner of the horse's left, left side of the corner of the horse's mouth just to the point where the horse acknowledges the fact, hey, the light's on, I need to do something. And the moment that he does it, then I want that light switch to go back off to reward the horse, in other words, for a job well done. And again, the point is I want the horse to be comfortable, number one. Number two, I want it to be very easy for the horse to detect whether or not the bit is making contact or it's not making contact. It's much easier for him to discern whether or not the light is on or off as opposed to brighter or dimmer. Well, maybe this is a dumb question, but it seems to me that from what you've described, that if you've got those wrinkles to where the, you know, it's always on, it's going to require almost the rider to have heavier hands to make a discernible signal because it's always on. Exactly. And, you know, and that's part of my point. One of the biggest things when I'm watching riders ride is oftentimes how hard they think they have to pull Mm -hmm. in order to get some sort of response from the horses. And, you know, when I learned something from one of my heroes in this industry, a fellow by the name of Tom Dorrance several years ago, in response to a question that I asked him, and he said, you know, Van, if you ever pull on a colt, you'll always have to pull on a colt. Because it, it's almost like if we are talking to children, and when you're talking to kids, if you talk to them loudly all the time, after a while, the child's not going to think you're serious unless you're talking loudly. Yeah. 
And what I've noticed both with people and children and horses is that oftentimes the quieter you talk, the more attention that you're going to gain from them. Mm -hmm. And then when you do ever have to raise your voice, or in this case, send a stronger signal to the horse, the horse now is certainly going to realize that you mean business because man, Oh, Van, he doesn't normally pull on me like that, so there must be really something up. I must be in really good trouble or whatever the case may be. But the problem is is that if we're always vocalizing to the horse, we're always sending those stronger signals, then over time, that's what the horse is going to learn to listen to. Sadly, they become numb, if you will, to the lighter signal. And And I guess that's what I was thinking of, that if you've always, if you got the bit in there so far that there's always these, the wrinkles, there's always contact on the corners of the mouth in order to sort of function, they have to learn to ignore that feeling, Yes, which means then you are going to have to pull harder to get their attention because they're consciously or not, they're ignoring the signal of the bit touching their mouth because it's always there. Right. And you know, and in fact, that's one of the things, it doesn't matter if it's with your legs when we're cueing a horse to go or our seat in the saddle or almost anything that we're asking a horse to do. So many times the horse has a very difficult job learning what to ignore and what not to ignore. And I guess a lot of people's cases, the thing they don't want them to ignore the most is the bit because they're scared to death the horse is going to run off with them. So we don't want to basically make it easy for the horse to ignore that bit by making the horse uncomfortable all the time. And then they do, they get a bit numb to that certain amount of pressure, whether it be just a wrinkle, two wrinkles or three wrinkles or a big smile on their face, they'll get used to thinking that's the norm. Therefore, they don't have to respond until the norm is amplified, and in some cases amplified considerably. I guess, and that makes sense to me, because I know having watched you riding, I have been struck many times by how very subtle your signals are. It seems to me you can do that because of that sort of minimal, the, the way you place the bit, if there's any contact at all, it's going to be more than what they're living with all the time. And, and so they're going to be paying attention. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, and that's the thing. I'm always amazed with, you know, when people say, well, you make it look so easy. But there's, there's something to be said for the old cliche that less is more. Yeah. And what people really watch whenever I'm riding a horse or working a horse on the ground is that perhaps in the beginning, I'm very, very deliberate. Mm-hmm. In other words, I don't mix around what, what signal I'm trying to send to the horse Therefore, it's easy for the horse to figure out what it is that I want. And then over time, I'm literally trying to make that signal more and more subtle to the point of what I call refinement of communication. You know, oftentimes I'll share a story about my grandparents, about when they were first married. Uh, I could only imagine what their communication was like. Of course, I wasn't around then, but years later, I'd spend the summers with my grandparents and they had a dairy farm and they also had some stalker cows. And whenever I'd go to the dairy farm with them, I was always amazed at how much communication was taking place in the barn. You know, my granddad would ask about a specific cow, and my grandmother would tell him, or uh, my granddad would make a comment about something, and my grandmom would respond. In other words, there's all this communication going on. So I was used to, in that particular setting, listening to them communicate back and forth. And yet, especially in the mornings when The milking was done. My grandmom would go back to the house and go to the kitchen. She'd prepare breakfast. Shortly thereafter, after the barn got all cleaned up, my granddad would come in, and they'd have breakfast together. And it was amazing how little they would say, but they would know exactly what the other wanted. For example, if my granddad needed the biscuits, then he would just barely make a signal, and my grandmom would pass the biscuits. 
And then if my grandmother wanted the salt and pepper, she would just barely maybe hint around and my granddad would pass the salt and pepper. So it was almost like this little communication dance that was taking place. And it was so soft and so subtle. And yet I was so amazed by that. Years later, I got to thinking, I bet it wasn't like that when they were newlyweds. Yeah. You know, I bet they really had to vocalize more and be very deliberate in the things that they said. And sometimes even in the tone in which they said it. And yet over the years, because of the communication was so similar for so long that it became very refined. Yeah. And, you know, you know that, you know, you've, you've been married, you and Mike have been married for several years now. So you know what I'm talking about, yeah. that refinement of communication. Well, so that to me is what relationship is all about, whether it's with someone or with a horse, is that we learn to refine that communication. But that only starts with that subtleness, yeah. you know, it, it, and, and that consistency. Yeah. So what I mean by less is more is it's just that constant awareness that you're trying to refine that signal that you're always sending to your horse. And it has to be done, I think, from the very start. Yeah. You know, and if, if we make it easy for the horse to discern what it is that we want by making it so easy, in fact, either the signal is there, in other words, the light is on, or the signal is not there, the light is off, that over consistent amount of time, the horse gets very comfortable with that. It makes it very easy from that moment on to refine it, even to the point. You've seen me do this to where if I wanted to turn to the right, sometimes the bit wouldn't even touch the horse. I would just yeah. simply look to the right. Yeah. And the horse would almost seem to be reading my mind. But he would know over, over time that when I looked to the right, that's the direction I was going to be traveling. And he knew that because that was immediately followed by my reins picking up toward the right. If the horse responded to that, fine. If it didn't, then I would make contact with the bit. And this over time, again, that refinement of communication come to the point of such familiarity that the horse just knew that if I looked to right, steps number two and three were following. And that's our goal, I think, with every horse is to refine that communication to the point to where it looks as if they're almost reading our mind. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so that's a that's a goal to work toward. And this conversation started out with talking about that first step of where you're placing the bit all of this in follow-up to what to the other information you gave last week. Well, the bit doesn't get there all by itself. You mentioned briefly just a minute ago about how you adjust the head stalls. We've talked about some theory. Let's talk about some of the mechanics. There's lots of different kinds of head stalls that the bit's going to be attached to. You know, what are the differences? What do you recommend? What? How does it all work? I like to have almost infinite measurements with my head stalls. Uh, as a result, Laura, I, I, I tend to find head stalls and all the ones that I've designed have buckles on both cheeks. And the reason why is I might have the left side picked up a little bit more than the right side, not to make the bit sit in the horse's mouth unevenly. It's just that I can adjust that head stall, I guess, more specific to that horse if I can adjust on both sides. And then on the other side of the scale is, is that there's so many different types of head stalls. You know, there's there's head stalls that are called brow band head stalls. There are some that are called slidier head stalls. And, uh, and of course, in this case, I'm talking mainly about Western type head stalls. There's one that I designed a few years ago with another company, what we call a half slide ear. I mean, there's so many different varieties. But the thing to make the bit easily adjustable to the horse, I would like to have adjustments and buckles on, on both cheek pieces. Just for that reason, I can make that adjustment very even and very um, almost an infinite number of measurements. The other thing is that if I was to choose a head stall that I would use on a horse, I would have to consider 
the horse and his use. For example, on a young colt, a horse that's just learning how to wear a headstall and how to handle a bit in his mouth, and if I was riding with especially a Snapple-type bit, then I would want to have a headstall that had both a brow band as well as a throat latch piece. And, of course, the throat latch piece is that piece that goes from the ear pieces back down behind the horse's jaw in that throat latch area. And the reason I want that, Laura, is that these younger horses have a tendency sometimes to shake their head or to rub their head on things. You, just, you never can tell what a young horse is going to do. So the last thing I want is for that head stall to, to have the risk of sliding over the ears and falling off. And perhaps even if the head stall did fall off, maybe that young colt wouldn't be well-trained enough to the point to where I could stop him or turn him with just the reins around his neck. So I want to make sure that bit stays in his mouth to kind of give me and, and any other rider for that matter just a little bit more security that that bit's going to stay in place and either not get rubbed off or not get slung off or not get uh, knocked off in some other way that would uh, put me in a situation where I wouldn't be able to communicate with the horse in the, in the most effective manner. But as I kind of progress to what I call full bridles, that's when I'll start kind of playing around with the different styles of head stalls. You know, another one of my favorites is a one-ear head stall or a half-slider head stall, mainly just because that's easy and comfortable for the horse. It's a little bit less leather on the horse's head, and it, uh, in some cases, can look a bit more refined. Uh, it looks like the horse is a bit more trained, and hopefully by the time I've got them in a, in a full bridle, they are. Uh, but I, I just want to emphasize that at that stage, I'm not nearly as concerned about the head stall falling off. And again, it also depends on where I'm. If I'm not working out so close, I'm probably going to still go with a head stall that's got a brow band and a slide ear, or I'm sorry, brow, a brow band and a throat latch piece. Because when I'm working cattle, I might be in the brush, or I might be in a corral somewhere, and I might just be in a situation where I just can't afford the time to stop right at that moment and put that head stall back on if it happened to come off. So I'm always looking for the tool that's going to best suit the situation to suit the job. And so going back and talking to, we'll just pretend I'm ignorant. <laughs> it's not much of a stretch to pretend. So the brow band and the throat latch are the primary purposes of, or is the primary purpose of those two pieces to stabilize it, to keep the head stall in place. Yeah, absolutely. It, I always thought it was just how it looked. It was just for appearance. Yeah, it is kind of just for the appearance, but they do have a purpose. Uh, one purpose is, is that the brow band basically keeps the head stall from sliding too far back. As a matter of fact, any earpiece is. You know, any earpiece that goes over the horse's ear, whether it be a one ear or a brow band or even a half slide ear, all of those are just basically to keep the head stall from sliding backwards and sliding too far back, uh, almost getting on to the pole region of the horse's uh, neck as opposed to staying up there right behind the ears. And, of course, um, the throat latch piece is to keep the opposite from happening. We don't want the bit to slide forward and, and fall off the horse's head and drop down his face. So as a result of that, we adjust those and we adjust the throat latch piece just to kind of keep that bit from sliding forward. And, of course, the brow band is just to keep the, the bit from sliding or the head stall from sliding backward. Okay. And so aside from that issue, you know, you talked about on a young horse that's just learning or if you're out working in the ranch that you're going to want probably a head stall that's got those pieces to help stabilize it. If you get somebody that comes to you and asks you the question, well, which head stall and which bit should I get? Depending on, <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about this a lot, you know, the only absolutes, there are no absolutes, but depending on the situation, depending on the experience of the horse, depending on the experience of the rider, I would probably recommend 
the brow band head stall, and of course, I'm going to recommend the offset D-ring snaffle. And the reason why is that uh, regardless of the level of the rider and regardless of the level of the colt or the horse, that combination, that head stall and, and that bit can almost be suited for just about anything, with the exception of certain competitions. For example, in the American Quarter Association and some of the other associations as well, we're not allowed to compete and show a horse that's over the age of five in anything that's considered a two-handed op- apparatus. It has to be a one-handed bridle or one-handed bit. You can show a snaffle with one hand, but it's very difficult, and you would be at a huge disadvantage. So again, depending on your experience level, what you're going to be doing with a horse, I would have to wait until I knew more specifics before I made a, a, a complete recommendation. But in most cases, I'm very comfortable in, in recommending you know, a snaffle-type bit and, and, of course, a brow band head stall with a throat latch. Well, in the last few minutes before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to say, I guess, on this general topic of bits and head stalls and anything else we've missed? Well, of course, if, if we kind of continue that cycle, we talked about the bits, the head stall, and then, of course, there's the reins. Uh-huh. And there's a very thing, well, there's a bunch of different opinions about that. And I personally have always been a big fan of split reins, mainly because I was you know ranch kid growing up, and I kind of grew up using split reins, and I use split reins all the time, with the exception of when I was calf roping. Even later on in life, when I was team roping a lot, I still use split reins, which is very rare. Most guys will use a roping type rein or, a, or what we call a loop rein as well. So we really, again, have to kind of match the reins to someone's taste as well as to the job. For example, if I was calf, I mean, I wouldn't want to use split reins because when I step off the horse and drop the reins, I don't want the reins to be dragging on the ground, running the potential of a horse stepping on the rein and breaking the rein or hurting the horse's mouth. So again, we kind of have to match the selection of our reins with the job as well as the experience of our horses, and and two, just for our comfort. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there that are very, very experienced, but they will prefer one rein over the other. You know, say, for example, I've got a, a guy out there at the ranch right now helping me out and, and riding some horses with me. He really prefers a loop rein, and I'm fine with that. I prefer, personally, again, the split reins, but it's kind of a, a, a taste thing. Whatever feels good to you and whatever gets the best results for you, then that's what I'm going to recommend. It can be a little overwhelming for somebody who doesn't have your level of experience with all the different kinds of things. When you walk into a tax store, personally, I walk in, I look around and I walk back out because there's an infinite variety of, I mean, set aside everything else, just of bits and of headstalls and of reins. And for somebody who hasn't been doing it long enough to have developed a preference, that's just overwhelming. And so not everybody can like come to your ranch and have you pick out there or have you go to the store with them. Is there a resource? I didn't ask you about this ahead of time. So, but off the top of your head, what do you recommend to somebody who can't come and sit with you and have, have you sort of do some triage and figure out what's the best setup for them? Where do they go to get that kind of information to help them weed out all this stuff that's being put out there and and find what's going to be a good setup for them? Email me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you know, that is a tough question, Laura, because, you know, if you go to the local feed store or the tax store, and, and like you said, you look at this wall of bits, and they all do. They all have walls and bits. There's just hundreds to choose from. And the same thing with the head stalls. There's just hundreds to choose from. There's some that are kind of like mine that are very, very functional, but 
very plain. I don't. I personally don't like a lot of silver on my bits. I like the old traditional, more plain type look. So it can be very, very overwhelming. And which do we choose? And um, I would highly recommend somebody finding, and I know this is a very difficult thing to do sometimes, find someone that you really trust. Not necessarily just the guy down the road that's owned horses all of his life. Make sure the guy knows what he's talking about. And ask and kind of create a dialogue with some people who have a good reputation. You know, there's an old cliche that's said by Zig Ziglar. It's, if you want to be successful, do what successful people do. The guy down the road is probably not very successful with his horses, but he's always had horses. That might not necessarily be the guy to go ask. Go ask somebody that's close to you that does seem to have some sort of success. It's riding really good, quiet horses, something along the same discipline that what you're doing. Yeah, I was going to say that that is doing that is successful with their horses doing whatever it is you want to do with your horses. Absolutely. Whether it's trail riding or competing or anything in between. And then the second thing is be very honest. Be very honest with what your skill level is and be very honest with what your horse's skill level is. And then perhaps even go ride with that person so that they can see and and at that point make a very good decision based on your skill level and your horse's skill level about what might be best for, for you and your horse. And I know you keep hearing me say might a lot. And I, again, there's the only absolutes are no absolutes. I, I wish I could just give somebody an if then answer, you know, if this happens, then this, and if your horse is this, then use that bit. But that's not always the case. And I also do appreciate the fact that sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes finding someone that is very knowledgeable because oftentimes people think they're, and I say this with all due respect to those out there listening, is that some people think that they know what's going on, and oftentimes they may not necessarily be the best person to seek advice from. Yeah. And, and I wish, gosh, I, I wish we could make that thing easier for people to do as well, but I know it's not not hard. You know, we said so in joking, but I do encourage people, though, they do have questions to let us know. And if we can help them via email, or if we can help them in some way by contacting us, then I would, of course, love to see them do that. If we can at least narrow down their search and increase their odds of success, then that's what we would like to do. Yeah. And in some cases, depending on where they're located, you may know someone in that area that you can refer them to. um, But one of the great things about modern technology is the fact that you can kind of consult and help from a distance because you can email, you can send photographs you can there's all those things that can be done and so i guess as we're wrapping up i would say for folks that have questions about bits or head stalls or equipment or anything else for that matter you can use the same email address that we've suggested before you can email van at info at vanhargis.com with your questions with your suggestions for topics that we can talk about on future episodes any kind of feedback, we're excited to get it. And Van sees every one of those emails and responds as quickly as he can uh, once he gets in off the horse <laughs> that he's riding. <laughs> what else would I say? Other ways you can connect with us would be uh, on Facebook. Look for Van Hargis Horsemanship on Facebook. Like the page and follow us announcements of upcoming things. In fact, the products that you have been working with Rainsman to develop and design that are available or going to be available very soon. Right. If you want to know about those things, watch Facebook because there's always going to be announcements on the Van Hargis Horsemanship Facebook page and on the website at vanhargis.com. I think those are the best ways to to get feedback. Yeah. And, and Laura, let me add to 
You know, we, we had a, a clinic recently, and I always emphasize to people is that, you know, I've been designing bits, I've been designing headstalls, been designing reins and saddles for years now. But I also want to emphasize to people, I'm not trying to sell you my stuff. I would, right. you know, it, it flatters me if people buy my equipment. My equipment is very simple. It's very basic. It's designed both for my use as well as the horses. I think the one thing, though, that I hope could ease people's minds sometimes when they are looking at my equipment is the fact that I use it and designed it because I do use it. Yeah. And, and I guess sometimes I'll say this, when in doubt, consult with me about either my bits or, or something else, because again, I'm not trying to sell them my stuff. It's just that I kind of done the homework for you. Right. Uh, and, and, and then of course, then if they do buy it, I'm, I'm tickled to death. I'm flattered. But at the same time, I just want people bottom line to feel and use the equipment that's best for them and best for their horse. I, I really don't care what they use. I just really want them to to know that how that bit affects the horse, how the head stall affects the horse, how the reins affects the horse, know how to use it. And then as a result from that, the confidence level, both in yourself, your horse and your equipment just goes through the roof. And that's what we really want for people so they can really enjoy their horses. And again, if they choose to do that via the homework we've already done, then I'm tickled to death and flattered. So, But if you do have questions, just be sure and get in contact with us. Sure. So again, you can uh, reach out to us at info at vanhargis.com or via uh, Van Hargis Horsemanship on Facebook. If you like the podcast, if you think it's worthwhile, we hope you'll subscribe and uh, consider leaving a review of the podcast in iTunes or on Stitcher. Just a, a couple of sentences left there. It does a couple of things. It helps with the way iTunes manages podcasts. It makes it more visible so that other people who are interested will have an easier time finding it. But even more important than that, the feedback is so important and so valuable to us in knowing whether Van is covering the topics that are interesting to you and if we're doing it in a way that helps you. So you can find that simply by going to vanhargis.com slash iTunes or slash Stitcher, and that'll take you right to where you can subscribe to the show, but also leave a couple sentences letting us know what you think. Other than that, I think that's it for this time. Van, any last words? Well, as always, Laura, we just really enjoyed doing it. I can't think of having more fun when we're doing these podcasts in the sense that I love reaching out to people, love helping them. And uh, I, I want the audiences to understand that because of them, it gives us an opportunity, especially myself. I can speak for myself saying, this is what I was meant to do, and, and I couldn't do it if it wasn't for them. And I, so I really appreciate people listening. And with that said, I'd just like to say this, too, that until next time, remember, it's your trail, your journey, and your life. So ride ever stride.